Amen. Please be seated. I'll be reading two portions of Scripture this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, and then 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7, and our text this morning, verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9, hear now God's Word. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, I'll be reading verses 1 to 7. Our text this morning, just verses 5 to 6, as we consider the theme, Christ, our mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. O gracious God and Father, how we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would illuminate our way this morning, that you would give us insight into the truths of your word, and that through your word we might see Christ, our great mediator and high priest, reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords over all things, and yet stooping down to us by the Holy Spirit in mercy and condescending grace. We thank you for such a great high priest and for such a great mediator, the only mediator between God and men. And we ask you, Lord, to teach us through him this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come this morning in the preaching of the Word to 1 Timothy 2, and it's verses 5 and 6 that we'll be looking at. 
This is the third in a series of sermons that I began preaching two months ago, I guess, on the person and work of Christ. So far, we've considered Christ as the only Redeemer of God's elect from Colossians 1. And then we considered Christ as the Son of God from John chapter 1. This morning, I want to turn our attention to Christ as our mediator, but not only as our mediator, as the only possible mediator for all mankind. Now, children, you may not know what a mediator is. And even your parents might have a very earthly and human idea of what this word mediator means. When we think of a mediator, what do we think of? We, we think of someone who comes to help us to resolve a problem, a problem that we may have with someone else. Maybe it's a problem over money. Often it is a problem over money. That's one of the things that people quarrel about the most in this world. One person has agreed to pay a certain amount for something, let's say a house. But the person moves into the house and discovers there are termites in the house. And so he tells his real estate agent, hopefully not Pete, He tells his real estate agent, who then tells the seller, and there's a problem, maybe a difference of opinion. The seller says he's not responsible. He had the the house checked for termites before the contract was signed. The buyer says he didn't get any notice of that. And it might be that the two sides, in order to resolve the dispute peacefully, will hire a professional mediator, someone whose job it is to help people settle their differences without having to take one another to court. Well, when we say that Jesus is our mediator, that is really only a dim and shadowy comparison. The problem Jesus has come to resolve is infinitely greater than a business dispute. The person that we need to be reconciled to is not merely another human being. Our text this morning sets before us the greatness of our need for a mediator who is able to reconcile sinners to God. And it shows us that Jesus is the only mediator who can do that because he alone is able to pay the ransom price for our sin. And so we want to consider this theme of Christ our mediator this morning by considering two things. First, our great need of a mediator, verse 5. And second, God's gracious provision of a mediator, verse 6. Let's look first at our great need of a mediator in verse 5. In order to understand what the Scripture is teaching us here in these two verses, we first need to take a step back and look at the context, get our contextual bearings. Paul is writing to Timothy, a faithful companion and disciple of the Apostle, a young man so close to Paul's heart that he refers to him as his spiritual son, Timothy has been called to minister in the church at Ephesus, a church that Paul planted. But as is the case with most of Paul's epistles, Paul writes to Timothy in order to address doctrinal and spiritual problems in the church. There were doctrinal and spiritual problems in the early church, believe it or not, just as there are doctrinal and spiritual problems in the church today. And so in chapter 1, Paul has warned Timothy to beware false teaching and to teach no other doctrine than what he has heard from his father in the faith from Paul and from the other apostles, perhaps. He's to teach no other doctrine than what he has heard from Paul, and he is to proclaim the gospel in its purity. He summarizes this, ch- this charge in 
chapter 1, verse 15, when he writes, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds a personal note of whom I, I, Paul, am chief. That, brothers and sisters, is to be the whole tenor and tone of Timothy's preaching. But we might also add of the preaching of every minister who will ever follow him. He is to preach the free and gracious offer of salvation for sinners in Jesus Christ. And he is to include himself as one desperately in need of the same salvation that he proclaims. Every preacher ought to proclaim the gospel in that way. Paul charges Timothy to wage the good warfare against carnal temptation and against false doctrine and to do so on no other basis than that of the word of God, chapter 1, verse 18. And so it's from this exhortation now that Paul moves to a consideration of the wideness and the vastness of the grace of God in the gospel, a gospel that is for all kinds and categories of people, for the Gentiles even. Since the gospel is for sinners, Paul urges Timothy and through Timothy, the whole flock at Ephesus to do what? To pray for all men and particularly for kings and all who are in political realm. Now, why does he do that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why does he do that at that point? Why would, why would believers need to pray for those who, especially in those days, were almost always the worst enemies of the truth? Why? Well, the answer is simple. The urgency of the gospel leads to an urgent, passionate, and articulate defense of the faith. If God is able to change and to transform the hearts of kings and of rulers, and he is, then he is truly God and can take heart in his, and we can take heart in his power to do all that he has said that he will do. Think about that for a moment. You look around, you look at the political landscape, you look at those who are in power, the great men of the earth, those who have wealth, those who are technology giants. And you say to yourself sometimes, it would not seem as if such a man or such a woman could ever be converted by the grace of God. And yet, the reality is, is that God is able to do far more than we ever imagine or think. You see, if we really believe that God is able to do all things, if we really believe that our faith is a supernatural faith and a supernatural God, then what does it move us to do? It moves us to believing prayer for all kinds and categories of people. And why do we pray? Well, we pray, as we read here, first of all, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, verse 2. But secondly, we pray so that the elect from all categories and kinds and conditions of mankind might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, verse 4. And so it's at this point now that Paul makes a very controversial statement. It's controversial because men and women don't want to be told that they need to be saved. By nature, we don't believe that sin is as bad as the Bible tells us that it is, do we? We want to tell ourselves that we're not perfect, that we, that we make mistakes, but we categorically reject the Word of God when it comes to us and says, not only have you sinned, meaning that you've infinitely offended an infinitely holy God, 
but you've sinned because you are a sinner. It's something in you that has caused you to do what you do. In other words, while we we might be willing, and many unbelievers might be willing to concede that we have some minor cosmetic blemishes, things that are easily fixed if we apply ourselves to working through our issues or, or things that we can get a little therapy for or that we can just work really hard at correcting and changing. But the moment that we hear that sin is not simply a matter of what we do, but a matter of who we are, we refuse by nature to hear the plain testimony of God's infallible word. But Paul's point is quite clear. Since there's only one God, there can be only one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, verse 5. That's why unbelieving men and women are so tenacious in clinging to all of their cherished idolatries. The carnal mind says, I will not worship a God who is not pleased with me just as I am. I will fashion for myself a God that will accept me just as I am. A God that will be spiritual but not religious. A God that doesn't require of me anything that I myself cannot produce or provide. That's the kind of God that we want to worship by nature. A God who will be my God on my terms and on my terms alone. And you see, this is the mindset that proves how desperately we need a mediator who can graciously reconcile us to the true and living God. Because that mindset is the mindset that is at enmity with God, that is at war with God, that by nature hates God. You see, this verse emphasizes two related and totally inseparable truths. Verse 5. First, there is only one God. As the psalmist says, all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Psalm 96, verse 5. And the one God who exists and who made all things is said in verse 4 to desire the salvation of all men. Now, I'm not an Arminian, so I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. It's, not a, it's really an astonishing proposition. Not only is, is God worthy of the worship of all mankind, but God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The wideness and the vastness of God's grace is seen. It's on display here. God's creation of all men is, is connected to His desire that all men would come to Christ, who said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. John 12, verse 32. The second truth, however, puts that desire into the flesh and blood and bones of the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, because there is only one God, there can only be one mediator between God and men. There is no other way for sinners to have access to the one God who exists, the holy God who made all things and claims all things as his own. There's no other way than through the one mediator given by God to men, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is a mediator? A mediator is one who brings two parties who are unreconciled into reconciliation with one another. And this reconciliation that man needs is the greatest possible reconciliation. Because God and man are, by nature, completely separated by sin. And man is at war with God. Man is shaking his fist at God. You don't need a mediator if you're at peace with someone. 
You only need a mediator when there is conflict, when there's a breach of peace, when there's hostility and war, fighting between two parties. And what Paul is saying is that it's self-evident that we need a mediator, that we and all men need a mediator. The wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Is being revealed. We don't even need the Bible to tell us that. It's a self-evident truth. Even the most hardened unbeliever knows that and suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. There is none who does good. No, not one. Every single child of Adam is in Adam at war with God. And peace will come not on man's terms and not by man's works, but on God's terms alone. There's nothing that you or I can ever do to bring that reconciliation about by by our own human willing or our human doing. We need the one and only mediator that God has provided, the man Jesus Christ. To reject him, to reject him is to reject the only hope of reconciliation possible with God. You see, that's what the phrase, the man Jesus Christ, is emphasizing. Paul's point is not that Jesus is just a man. Jesus is not just a man. But his point is not simply to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. It's not just that. Not at all. His point is to highlight the uniqueness of Jesus and to highlight the unique suitability of Jesus to be just the kind of mediator that sinners like you and me need. He's much more than a man. He's the only man who could make this possible. Only Jesus, only the incarnation of the Word of God, only the sinless life of the Savior in our human frame, in our mortality, only the cursed death of the cross, and only the present ministry of the God-man in the heavenly temple makes the Father who dwells in unapproachable and inaccessible light accessible. A Father who is accessible to sinners like you and me only through the mediator, the man Jesus Christ. That brings us to our second point. God's gracious provision of a mediator, verse 6. What kind of mediator do we need? Have you ever asked that question? What kind of mediator do we need? We need a mediator who is able to justify sinners, whether Jew or Gentile, Romans 3.30. We need a mediator who will deliver us from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. We need a mediator who is able to unite our human nature to God by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 9. We need a mediator who is God, because only the triune God is able to supply a mediator from himself to mediate between himself and men, Galatians 3:20. There's only one God. And that God has revealed there's only one faith, one true church, one baptism, one spirit who is able to dwell in the hearts of all those who believe. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And so what conclusion are we left with? If it is possible for sinners to come to the knowledge of the truth, it is only because Jesus is the great prophet who grants the knowledge of God by the Holy Spirit. If prayer can be offered up to God on behalf of kings... And presidents, it must be because Christ is a greater king than those that he saves. If a single sinner is able to have access to the throne of grace in heaven, it must be because Christ is a merciful high priest who has given himself 
for sinners and because he ever lives to intercede for us at God's omnipotent right hand. This is precisely the kind of mediator that God has provided in the God-man Jesus Christ. We have a mediator, brothers and sisters. We have a mediator. We have a Savior. A Savior who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 John Calvin says that we need to have this deeply impressed upon our hearts again and again that the Son of God holds out to us the hand of a brother, a brother who has united us to himself in order that we might be raised with him to heaven and so that we might not be so terrified of God that we would draw back from him and fail to approach him in prayer and supplication. But instead that we would remember that this man, Jesus Christ, gently invites us and takes us by the hand, as it were, so that we might be reconciled to God. Isn't that amazing? But the question is, how does he do that? Well, that's what we have answered for us here in verse 6. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And the very same idea is found in Titus 2, verse 14, where we read beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. What did Jesus give? Jesus gave himself. Jesus gave himself. And in giving himself, he gave all that he had to give. God gave all that he had to give in giving us Jesus. That one sentence expresses the very heart of the gospel. This salvation has appeared to all men, but as redeemer and mediator, he gave Himself for us. This is how Paul phrases the same thought that we have in our text in his letter to Titus. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus as mediator, as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king, gave himself as a ransom for all the elect, which includes all kinds and categories of men. There is one God, and that one God has given us a son who is more than sufficient to meet the need of all mankind for salvation and life. What does the word ransom mean? The word ransom means a purchase price to set free a captive or a slave. And so what was the ransom price that the mediator, the man Christ Jesus gave? He gave himself. He became a bondservant for our, for our sake. He made a great exchange. He gave himself in exchange for all those for whom he died. And that's precisely how we need to understand these words. Who gave himself a ransom for all. You see, we can miss Paul's whole point if we focus on the word all and assume that we know what that word means in its context, in the context of these verses. Often you'll hear the argument, it goes something like this. All means all. All means all. What more is there to say? All means all. 
And of course, the unbiblical conclusion is the heresy of universalism. Christ died for every human being. Therefore, every human being's ransom was paid for by Christ at the cross. That's universalism, and that's heresy, brothers and sisters. Human being's ransom has been paid, then every human being has been set free. Every human being was saved by Christ at the cross. Every human being was redeemed by Christ at the cross. That is emphatically not what Paul is saying here, nor does it fit with the whole counsel of God's Word. We need to interpret Scripture by Scripture. In fact, this is quite clear in the original Greek. The, the meaning is quite clear. It doesn't say this at all. It, it says something quite different. And there we read, Ha dus heaton, anti lutron, huper pontan. The word ransom is lutron, which comes from the word, verb luo, to loose or to set free. But before and after the word lutron or ransom are two prepositions, anti and huper. And I'm not trying to give a, a lesson in Greek. I'm trying to help you to see that it's right there in the text. In this context, anti or anti means instead of or in place of, and huper means in behalf of. And you put those things together and you get it all. When you put those two prepositions together with the word ransom, there can be no doubt in the original language right there in the text that those who've been purchased have been purchased really and truly and fully by the precious blood of Jesus Christ in behalf of, in the stead of, not with silver or gold or corruptible things, but with the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The death of Christ paid the redemption price for every sinner for whom Christ died. That's what our text says. He died instead of, he died in the place of each one, each individual for whom he died. He died on behalf of all those for whom he died. And this is because he paid the penalty for every single sinner for whom he died. And you have to get that in your mind. That if he paid the penalty for my sin long ago, it's gone, it's been paid, it's done. The debt is fully and finally paid he tasted death for every single person for whom his blood was shed. He suffered the wrath of God in your place and in your behalf if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. Which means that if you were represented by Christ in his death at the cross, your debt has been fully paid. And that's the most comforting truth. That's the most comforting truth that you can ever come to understand. It wasn't hypothetically paid. It wasn't paid possibly. It wasn't paid if you do this, or if you will this, or if you believe this. It was paid. It was paid fully and finally. It wasn't conditionally paid. It was paid once and for all and forever. That's what our mediator did for us at the cross. And so why does Paul say that Jesus gave himself a ransom for all? Paul is writing as one who knows that all of this was to be testified in due time, that the mystery of the ages was about to be revealed, 
that God was going to bring a Messiah into the world. It had been testified throughout the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, he would bring salvation not only to the Jews, but to the whole world. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, in whom God promised to bless not only Abraham and his descendants physically, but to bless the whole world. The suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 would come and would bring salvation to all nations. Jesus himself testified that he came to give his life a ransom for many. And he means there not just for the Jews. Matthew 20, 28. Peter in his Pentecost sermon preached that the gospel was now not only for us and our children, not only for Jews and their children, but also for as many as are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Acts 2.39, that verse is the reason why I am a Presbyterian today. Paul the Apostle, to the Gentiles, testified that there is no distinction now between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The same promise in the Old Testament to you and to your children, Jews, is now applied to all mankind, to you and to your children. Do you see the point? Whoever you are, whether Jew or Gentile, black or white, American, African, Asian, male or female, old or young, slave or free, king or peasant, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. The ransom has been paid. The testimony has been confirmed by the blood of Christ and the preaching of the apostles. And now, by the word in our hands and the word in our hearts, no matter who you are, no matter where you are from, no matter what you have done, no matter how great your sin, you might even be the chief of sinners. Nevertheless, You have ample warrant. You have sufficient grounds to believe that if you rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation, your ransom has been paid in full by your mediator. And he has set you free because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. His blood is sufficient to cover the sins of a multitude of every nation, tribe, and tongue of every category and every condition of people so that no one here this morning can honestly or truthfully say, I have no reason to believe that Christ is a mediator for me. Because if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, you and your household. Is Jesus your mediator this morning? If so, His Spirit will move you to pray for all kinds and categories of men that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. All kinds and all categories. And I know that you here at PRPC, I know that you're doing that. I know that there's a ministry here to refugees from other parts of the world. You're praying for all kinds and categories of men. God knows perfectly who belongs to Him, and you and I don't. That's why we proclaim the Gospel. God knows perfectly who are His, and you and I do not. It's why we are called to pray urgently and fervently for all men. No matter how deep their sin, no matter how wicked they are, 
And so the question is, do you pray for unbelievers? Do you pray for your enemies? Do you pray for unbelieving political leaders who have wicked agendas and would seem to want to destroy the entire civilization in which we and our children live? Do you pray for them? Do you pray for those who hate you and persecute you and despitefully use you? Remember your Savior's prayer from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If God has given us a mediator in Jesus Christ, we will seek the salvation of all men. We can't know His will for any specific person. So we preach the gospel to all men. We bear witness of Christ to all men. We pray for all men. Seek the salvation of all men. If you have the heart of your mediator this morning, you will pray for all those who have not yet begun to worship and to serve and to follow Him. And if you are outside of Christ this morning, will you reject such a great salvation and such a great Savior as this? Will you say that because He didn't die for all individual sinners, He must not have died for me? But what does Jesus Himself say to you in the Gospel? If you believe, then you shall be saved. No one can ever say Jesus' death is not enough to pay the price for my sins. No one can ever say God is not willing to save me and my family. If you can hear the sound of my voice this morning, I don't even need amplification here. If you can hear the sound of my voice this morning, then you can know that you can be saved and that without money and without price. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the rich truth that we have found here in your word this morning. That we have a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only mediator sufficient to save every single sinner who comes to him in faith. The one who supplies even the faith by which we come. And so we ask you this morning, O Lord, that you would help us to rejoice in our mediator that you would help us to flee to our mediator whenever we find ourselves in sin, that we would flee to him, that you would help us to pray for all men, even our enemies, that you would help us to long for the salvation of all those that we come into contact with, that we would not be complacent, O Lord, but that there would be an urgency for us, an urgency to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bear witness of that gospel in our lives and in our families, in our homes and in this church. And we pray, Lord, that through our witness and through the proclamation of your word, you would bring forth an abundant harvest unto everlasting life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.